everyone, welcome to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. Before we get started, go ahead and like and subscribe for this podcast, wherever you may be listening to any of these podcasts on any major platform. It goes into the algorithm, really helps out this podcast. Also, really quick, before we get started, let's hear a word from my sponsor. Welcome back to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. So, this episode is going to be another Give Me an Answer by Pastor Cliff Connectly. This is one of the old classic ones they have. I hope you enjoy it. Friedrich Nietzsche said, God is dead. God says, Friedrich Nietzsche is dead. Which one is right? Did you see the bumper sticker? The one that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. I'm going to make my own bumper sticker. It's going to say, he who dies with the most toys is dead. He doesn't win anything. All of us have a world view. Be you Friedrich Nietzsche, be you the guy who put together the bumper sticker that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. We all have faith. We all have a view of reality. We all have a way that we go about determining our meaning in life, the ethics that we embrace, our view of the future, what happens after death. All of us have a world view, a way we seek to process reality. One of the main reasons that I trust Jesus Christ is because his view of reality rings true in my experience in life. Jesus insists that the innate drive that you and I have for meaning in life is there because God created us for a purpose. You and I are not simply accidental collocations of atoms. You and I are human beings created by God for a purpose. That is why all of us have this innate drive to understand the purpose of our lives. But I don't see how God will send the five billion people that are not Christian to hell because they don't accept Jesus, but because they believe in another faith. How is that? I don't know how, I mean, I don't, then I don't see how God is just if that's what's going to happen. That's what you're going on. Hell is the natural outworking of my will be done. I think I know what the theme song of hell will be. I did it my way. God says, you go ahead and do it your way for eternity. I will not interfere. But that's saying that the only way you can be, as you put it, a friend of God is through Christ. And there are people that see themselves as being close to God, but not through Christ, through Moses or, or Muhammad or through a number of different ways. And so then they'll go to hell because they don't see Christ as the way to get close to God. Is that what you're saying? Well, the only way I can have a friendship with you is by relating to you. I can't have a real friendship with you by going through him. And so Jesus claimed to be the real, true, living God, saying, come on, here I am. 
In John chapter 12, Jesus essentially says, if you see me and don't like what you see, your real problem is with God. If you hear what I say and don't like what you hear, your real problem is with God. In other words, Jesus made this incredibly audacious claim to be the eternal pre-existent God revealing himself in human form. The duty deserves to be in that mental hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan, with the other guys of the Messiah complex, or else he deserves to be worshipped. The question is, is he reliable? Is he true? So yes, then, sir. Oh, go ahead. Well, sorry. So, so then, like, Gandhi would be going to hell. How do you know that? Well, I'm just, because he didn't accept Christ as a savior. Well, I don't know that. But you're saying if you don't accept Christ as your savior, then you're going to hell. Well, Jesus said that if you reject me, you will not go to heaven. But I don't have the faintest idea what Gandhi decided about Christ before he was assassinated. It's not for me to make that judgment. Well, he wasn't a Christian. Pardon? He wasn't a Christian, though. Gandhi had a tremendous respect for Jesus Christ. Gandhi once said, I like their Christ. I don't like their Christians. I can understand his point. But Gandhi had a tremendous respect for Christ. He was very familiar with the Gospels, with the New Testament. And yes, he struggled. And what did he decide before he was assassinated? I don't have the faintest idea. Gandhi doesn't answer to me. He answers to God. But if he didn't accept Christ as his savior, let's just say hypothetically he didn't, then he's going to hell. Jesus clearly said that any human being who rejects him is rejecting God. They're choosing to live their life separate from God. They will go to hell. I think that statement is, I don't agree with that at all, because I think the fact that everyone in America is, a majority is, is Christian is by chance. I mean, if you look at the Crusades, there was, there was a war in Spain that it was Muslims versus the Christians, and if the Muslims would have won that war, they would have went on to take over a lot of Europe, and everybody in America would probably be, you know, raised as Muslims in, in their ideology. The fact that the Christians won, they maintained, you know, power over Christianity in Europe, which ended up becoming over here and becoming Christian. So, I mean, if the Muslims would have won that, it's kind of saying, like, everyone here probably, you know, would have Muslim ideology and everyone would be going to hell. You know, it's like, a lot of people don't have, we don't have control over that. It's, I don't, I don't totally agree with the fact that if you don't, if you're not raised as a Christian, you don't, you know, you don't, you're not, you don't accept Christ as your savior because you have a belief in another God or another okay. entity that you go to hell. I don't. Right. I mean, I understand the power of your argument, all right? But here's what helps me think through that. Jesus insisted that God loves the world, every single one of us, that by his Holy Spirit, he reaches out to all of us around the globe, spiritually drawing us to himself. Study the church in China. Before the communist takeover, before Mao Zedong came to power, the followers of Christ were a very small group there were missionaries working there, but it was a very small church. The communists came to power. All the missionaries were either murdered or kicked out of China. For years, China was closed. When China finally opened and the followers of Christ went back in as missionaries, they found a church that had exploded, the underground church. Look at Africa. If anybody has a reason not to believe in Jesus because of Christian hypocrites, it's the black African. It was them white Christians that came and enslaved them. And yet, my African brothers and sisters have had the intellectual objectivity to realize 
those white racist Christians were totally misrepresenting Christ. I'm not going to give a white Christian racist the power to turn me off to the true Jesus who did not have a racist bone in his body. And Africa, Sub-Sahara Africa, is predominantly followers of Christ. So God works in tremendous ways by his Holy Spirit. You and I have a free will. You don't have to believe what mom and dad taught you. I don't have to believe what mom and dad taught me. We have a free will. And God loves us, and by his Holy Spirit, he reaches out and draws us to himself. It's exciting. I believe not in any written word. I don't really believe in religion, but I believe in humanity. I believe in doing good for humanity, regardless of your creed, your religion, what you follow, what you say, what you pray to. So in that sense, I mean, it doesn't really matter to me either way, but I'm going to hell. Well, I hope you're concerned about that. I mean, life is superior to death. Oh, supremely, I guess. Now, if you say that you believe in that which is good, who do you trust to define good? That's a very good question. Um, well, in light of the fact that you're so committed to it, yeah. I hope you got, you're going to have to think that one through careful, right? I use a basic set of morals. Um, for example, I believe that killing someone is wrong, stealing is wrong, uh, going through life and lying to people is wrong. I mean, using those simple sets and kind of treating everything case by case, then you could go about and say, well, I've lived a good life because I have believed in these, these basic, basic rules of life, I, I guess, that say people who do something against these, these basic rules of life, they're not acting in a very humane way to other people. They're judging them, they're being very negative, very violent towards them, then those people are being bad. And hence, the opposite, those people that believe in helping others, believe in philanthropy, believe in doing things because it doesn't just benefit them, but it benefits all of humanity in, for example, helping the needy, helping the poor. Um, Donate, donating things to help people eat. I believe in helping the broader sense of humanity, not specific religions, but in that sense, because I'm a very humane person and I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Mohammed, I don't believe in Jehovah, I don't believe in all different things. I don't, I don't believe in Buddha. But in that sense, because I act this particular way, I am going to hell. All right. I respect highly your commitment to goodness. But sir, if you think deeply and clearly, I'm convinced, your commitment to goodness demands there to be some type of God. If there is no God, there is no mind prior to the human mind that creates and defines good. If there is no God, no mind prior to the human mind, then it's obvious who creates good, the human mind. Which means your human mind defines good this way. The KKK defines good that way. The Nazi German defines good another way. 
The white South African defines good another way. Nobody's right, nobody's wrong. It's all relative. But you know that you can't live that way because you have a conscience that informs you feeding the hungry is good, stealing is evil. Telling the truth is good, lying is evil. See, sir, you're wired in such a way that you automatically understand what is good and what is evil. Now ask yourself, where does that understanding come from? Where do these moral absolutes come from that I base my life on? See, sir, if there is no God, what you are basing your life on is a prejudice. It's a bias. It's a particular cultural slant. It's the result of a particular education that you receive. It's not more right than the Nazi, than the KKK. It's just what the, your human mind and others around you created, which is not more valid than what someone else created. You see, which means, sir, if you begin to think about it, you begin to have to acknowledge it really doesn't matter whether I tell the truth or lie. It's just a bias. It doesn't really matter whether I date rape or respect her. It's just an issue of testosterone level. And what you begin, be, what you begin to realize is the meaninglessness, the despair of life. It doesn't matter whether I become Mother Teresa II or Hitler II. It's all relative. It's all arbitrary. It's just a matter of personal taste. I prefer Coke to Sprite. I prefer lying to telling the truth. I prefer Italian food to Polish food. I prefer rape to respecting the woman. It's all just a matter of taste. But if there is a God, then it's possible that that woman has an innate value that rape is a denial of, and therefore rape is absolutely evil. If there is a God who created a value of truth and who created you and me to tell the truth, then it is absolutely evil to lie. See, so just examine the way you want to live your life. And you're a, you've got a sensitive conscience, obviously. Now ask yourself, where does this conscience come from? It's got to come from God. Because if, if there's no God, then your conscience is just a biochemical response to your environment. Or it's just a, a, it's just a chemical leaning. I was wondering, as Judaism, as a founder of Christianity, like, how, how does that fit in there if they didn't have a clear perception of it until Christ came? You bet. Very good question. Sir, to be honest with you, I don't have a clear picture of heaven. Some people that I love very, very much, like my parents, are getting rather old and they're not far away from dying. And I can promise you, I wish that I could give them a clear picture of heaven. But Jesus and the New Testament do not give us a crystal clear photograph of heaven. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, mind has not conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And I can promise you, sir, when my mother is sitting before me and she's almost 80 and she's struggling with some health issues, and she's saying, Cliff, tell me about heaven. I have to limit myself to what Jesus and the New Testament teach. And sir, it's not a clear photograph. It's not a Kodak moment. There's uh, a lot of mystery. Now, is the Old Testament even vaguer? Yes, sir, that's correct. But is there hope of eternal life in the Old Testament? Absolutely, yes. Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. 
Job cries out. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, I will see him. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. What, what passage was that again? Job chapter 19, Job. verses 25 to 27. The clearest Old Testament passage about life after death for all of us is Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where Daniel talks about multitudes who will rise, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting punishment. So Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 is a very clear statement of judgment and life after death. And I would argue that Psalm 23 is a tremendous statement of it as well. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But you're right. It's not as clear as I wish it would be. But sir, to be honest with you, Neither is the New Testament. I like them Kodak clear prints. And I don't get that in the New Testament of heaven. Um, what about specifically the question of hell? I mean, the heaven, that, that's an argument for heaven existing is inferring from for, forever and things like that. What about um, the Old Testament's view on hell? Great point. I would insist that both the Old and the New Testament warn us about hell but once again, sir, they don't give us a Kodak instamatic picture. And I obviously have a real problem with people who fill in the gaps. I have a real problem with the intellectual dishonesty of someone who says, Jesus taught this is what hell's going to be like, when he didn't say anything to that effect. Now, obviously, in the Middle Ages, you have some authors writing some works that graphically depict hell and graphically depict heaven. And I'm convinced they overstated their case. The same way today, I'm convinced that certain followers of Christ overstate the case of how God created. The Bible doesn't tell us how God created. And for me to take my own scientific view, jam them into the text, is intellectually dishonest. And, sir, I can promise you, Jesus used the most horrible language to describe hell. But in light of the fact that in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says that hell was prepared for the devil and his demons. In light of the fact that the devil and his demons are spiritual beings, not physical beings, what does that tell us about the precise nature of hell? And my point would be, be careful. Not much, because they're... Yeah, well put. Yes, Jesus talks about gnashing of teeth in hell. Yes, in Mark we read about the worm that does not die. But good gracious, that is obviously symbolic language. And it becomes even more symbolic in the Old Testament. Exactly. So what do we have to do? We obviously have to learn to live with mystery. Someone says to me, oh, that's a cop-out. No, it's not a cop-out. If you and I are going to build a friendship, like it or not, you're going to have to live with a lot of mystery. Because there's a lot of craziness inside of me that you're never going to be able to understand. Sure. And the reason I feel so comfortable telling you that it's because there's just as much craziness inside of you. <laughs> inside of all of us. There's always mystery when you enter a friendship, when you enter a relationship. You don't understand a person totally. Now, often you'll hear people use the analogy of an elephant surrounded by a few blind men. And one blind man reaches and grabs the elephant's tail and says, it's a rope. 
Another blind man is feeling the torso and says, it's a wall. Another blind man is holding onto the trunk saying, it's a snake. And you see, the point of the religious syncretist, the religious pluralist is, you see, all religions are essentially just giving their take on the supreme reality. But you see, what the religious syncretist is saying is, my perspective is outside of the blind man, outside of the elephant, and I see everything. And I'm telling you that it's just an elephant. But you see, that's highly disrespectful of Mohammed, Christ, Buddha, and the avatars. Because all of them are saying, no, 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 no. I am revealing to you truth about the ultimate reality. I'm not a blind man feeling just part of it. This is true. So you see, even the religious pluralist is incredibly exclusivistic in his or her claims. Now, how are you and I to determine who is speaking the truth? The same way you do that here at the University of Illinois. Before you accept anything as being true, you demand evidence. We'll use that same approach to finding God. Don't just blindly say, I'm gonna trust Christ. I'm gonna trust the Avatars. I'm gonna trust Muhammad. Because you'll get ripped off. Instead, demand evidence. Now, in Hinduism, truth claims are made through mythology. There's nothing wrong with that but understand what's being done. The Vedas and Upanishads are mythology, and they're insisting these myths are communicating truth. So figure out a way that you're going to test whether that's true or not. Obviously, the frustrating thing for me is I'm going to have to just analyze it philosophically because it's, it's communicating truth through myth. Read the Quran. That is not mythology. It's very clear that Muhammad is making very clear claims. Muhammad is not a mythological figure. He's a space-time historical person. Examine how Muhammad treated people, including women. Examine what Muhammad taught, and see if the evidence points to him being reliable or not. Read the New Testament Gospels. Examine the lifestyle, the ethical teachings, the death, the resurrection of Christ. Ask yourself, does the evidence point to Christ being the type of person I can trust or not? Now, sir, for me, it's so simple. When you read the Quran, there are major contradictions. I've got major problems with Muhammad's view of his personal sex life. He gets visions from God. Just read Surah 33 and Surah 66. It's right there in the Quran. When I read the New Testament Gospels, when I examine the life of Christ, he lives the type of life that in my best moments, I wish I would live. But I've repeatedly failed. So my respect for Christ just leaps, quadruples. Then when I see him die and rise from the dead, guys, suddenly this thing is a no-brainer. The evidence is that Jesus Christ is reliable in a way that none of the options are. Now, what's one of the most frustrating experiences for me is to have some intelligent university students say, I'm sorry, Cliff, the evidence for Christ is not enough. Not enough. Okay, fine. But what you're saying is when you tell me the evidence for Christ is not enough, you're saying, before I have X amount of evidence, I cannot trust. Okay, fine, I hear you. But if you're going to tell me that Christ does not meet X amount of evidence, 
then you had better tell me what or who does. You'd better explain to me what you're living for and what the evidence is that what you are living for is true. Otherwise, you are one flaming intellectual hypocrite with an amazing double standard saying, nah, Christ doesn't need the amount of evidence that I need for trustworthiness, so I can't trust him. Okay, well, that implies that's a clear statement. Before I trust, I need this amount of evidence. Fine, so please tell me, what are you living for? And what's the X amount of evidence that has shown you that what you are living for is true? So, if I'm blind, and I know I'm blind, okay, I can't see anything, so if I ask myself, can I see, I come up with no. And I reach my hand out in front of my face, and I touch something, and it feels to me like a wall. But all I do is stand in one spot and reach my hand out and touch one thing, and then I decide to conclude about the entire universe in front of me? Where's the sense in that? So, you called it intellectually arrogant for a religious pluralist to say that different people could have different views of the same God through different experiences. But a blind man knows he's blind, and so a blind man ought to be able to say, if I could see but couldn't touch, this wall would be a different thing to me. And if I could taste, but couldn't see or touch, the wall would be yet another thing to me. So the real intellectual arrogance is in assuming, against all evidence to the contrary, that you have all of the evidence right in front of your face just by reaching one hand out to conclude about the entire nature of the universe. And intellectual humility, which is the most important prerequisite for intellectual progress, comes in recognizing that we can't see all of the facts at one time. So we have to be open to change. So absolutism about the nature of the universe, absolutism about morality, is a trap. It's a trick and it's blindness without knowing you're blind. You're right, the elephant analogy applied to religious pluralism. But then I switched, and I, I didn't make that clear enough, so I'm sorry. What I said was, in my switch, in my second account is, when I'm confronted by a person, I don't know what they believe, and they say to me, Cliff, the reason I cannot trust Jesus is because there's not enough evidence to support his credibility. What they're saying is, the evidence for Christ is not enough. I need more evidence. What I ask them then is, what are you living for? All of us are living for someone or something. And then secondly, what is the evidence that what you are living for is so conclusive? And inevitably, the answer that I get from that individual is, well, I haven't thought about it too much. Or, well, this is what I'm living for. But then when I ask him, okay, now would you please give me this preponderance of evidence that has so convinced you that this is what you should be living for? See, the answers that I get to that 
are so poorly thought out. There's a clear double standard. Let me give you an example. Someone says, I'm sorry, Cliff, there's not enough evidence that Jesus is reliable. I say, okay, I understand, I hear you. So what are you living for? I'm living for myself. I am the center of my, of my world. I said, fine. What is the evidence that you are more reliable than Jesus? And the answers that I get are scary. In other words, there's a double standard. Christ, in order for me to trust you, you gotta give me this amount of evidence. But what I'm living for right now is about this amount of evidence. So I mean, if someone's gonna pretend that before they can take a step of faith, they have to have X amount of evidence and Christ doesn't meet that standard. But then they're living for something today that has so much less evidence than Christ, it's scary. That's the intellectual hypocrisy I'm referring to. Okay, but again, and, and we talked about this last time, I just kind of mentioned it in passing, you're assuming a null hypothesis about the universe without proving it. So what does that mean? You don't know everything. I don't know everything. Right. So you're assuming that there is some one thing that explains everything. Uh -huh. But we don't know that. I don't know that. Okay, good. You don't know that. So I'll tell you what I'm living with and living for. Okay. I'm comfortable with the fact that I don't know everything about the universe. Right. Okay? What's the evidence for that? I don't know everything about the universe. I have just given you... And, and I'm completely comfortable with that. And I don't know how much this newspaper weighs. Okay? There's something I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where you're from. I don't know what your mother was like. Uh -huh. I don't know what kind of relationship you guys had. I don't know almost anyone in this crowd's name. Uh -huh. It goes on and on. Yeah. I've just given everybody a perfect concrete proof that I don't know everything. And it wasn't hard. And so if we just live comfortably with not having absolute answers, with nobody having lived and died just to create a narrow path we can trod down through our lives, if we accept uncertainty, it's simple. And we've got all the evidence we could ever need that there is uncertainty. And you can never, ever match that standard of proof. So to call it hypocritical to say that your proof of X is better than anyone's proof of just a little bit of uncertainty, I mean, it's wrong. The mathematics don't work out. And you could walk into any introductory level statistics course and find that. Your uncertainty is always more than zero. And if all you have to have is more than zero uncertainty versus infinite proof, I, I, I don't see where the hypocrisy then in um, taking up the idea that it would require a higher standard of proof to believe in Jesus than to believe in uncertainty. I don't see that hypocrisy. Sir, my point is, although you and I are both uncertain of the majority of things in life, although you and I both have huge intellectual gaps of knowing nothing, you're living for someone or something. You are not here at the University of Illinois by accident. Sir, I can promise you, you are a highly, highly motivated person. And it's not uncertainty. It's not, I don't know, I don't know. No, everyone here knows something. And you prove it by the way you live your life. You're living for something, something motivates you. So you, you worship something.
you have faith in something or someone. To worship simply means to consider ultimately worthy. You consider something ultimately worthy. That's why you're here. If you didn't consider anything ultimately worthy, I don't know, you'd probably be back committing suicide somewhere if you thought it was all just a crapshoot. So you guys have faith. Everybody has faith. Meaning by that, you believe, you can't prove, but you believe that something's worth the effort of sucking wind, eating three meals a day, working, getting a diploma. If you're going to tell me you're here by accident, I'm going to tell you to quit lying to yourself and to me. You're not here by accident. You're a highly motivated group of individuals, and I respect that. But now you better ask yourself, what motivates me? What am I living for? And that'll be the answer to the question, what is my faith in? What do I believe is true, is worthy of my allegiance? I'm standing here saying, when you answer that question, whatever it is you're living for, I'm asking you to consider Jesus Christ. I'm out here saying that whatever you're living for, if it's not Christ, it's not supported by as much evidence that it's trustworthy as Christ is. One quick example. I live in a very wealthy suburb of New York City. I live among people who have done a very, very good job climbing the corporate ladder and doing investments on Wall Street. You know what a midlife crisis is? A midlife crisis is one of you guys, 20 or 30 years from now, beginning to realize, waking up one morning and realizing, guess what? The wall that I have leaned the ladder of my life up against ain't solid. I thought a stock portfolio I thought having it all, that that was the real purpose of my life. And now that I'm 49, 50, 51, I'm beginning to realize that being on the top rung of the corporate ladder, having a rather large stock portfolio, has not brought my life the type of meaning, fulfillment, and joy that I thought it would. So I'm in midlife crisis now. Well, I get to work with those guys. And I'm pleading with you guys, Think carefully. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have a lot of motive. You got drive. You're living for someone or something. What's the evidence that what you are living for is not going to end in a midlife crisis where you're having to ask, oh gosh, why did I put so much effort into this path? Why did I have so much faith in economic prosperity being the key to my life? I'm standing here saying Jesus Christ is more reliable than a large stock portfolio. Jesus Christ is more reliable than all the money in the world when it comes to bringing your life meaning, purpose, fulfillment, satisfaction. And I don't care how much money you make, you're going to leave it all behind. The American dream does not give you eternal life. Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ is more reliable than a swath, a cut of the American dream. Put your faith in Christ, not in the American dream. Welcome back to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. I hope you really enjoyed this broadcast from Give Me an Answer with Pastor Cliff Connectly. Um, if you guys are interested, you guys can always tune into them. They are over at Grace Community Church in New Canaan, Connecticut. 
Also, I want to remind you guys, again, if you haven't already done so, please like and subscribe to this channel wherever you may be listening to your podcast. It really goes a long way to helping out this channel reach more people with the gospel message and challenge people to think. So, until next time we meet again, may God richly bless y'all, my dearly beloved.